Father, anoint your word, give it life, give it meaning, and may we be receptors of your mercy for all that we have done that has needed your grace, that has required your death for us. Oh, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. We're winding down to the end of Hebrews, but you know what? We aren't really winding down. I think we're gearing up because this is where we really clinch what Hebrews is all about. And just to give you a heads up, we're going to have a a final. Do you know what a final is? How many are students here? We're going to have one toward the end of July. Okay, so because this is kind of a wrap-up here that Hebrews is doing, we have to be able to keep in mind some of the messages that we remember that the Holy Spirit has made real to our hearts as we've been going through the book of Hebrews. And that's all very personal. It doesn't have to be anything written on a test other than the fact that it's in your heart. And what we just sang points to that and his grace so abundant to us. We're looking to Jesus and he is the one that we are focused on, not just as a model, but he is actually the life that we should emulate and be. That life should be coming out of us on a daily basis. He says, you are light. You are my disciples. I send you out with this message. And whether you feel adequate or not to be a preacher or just someone that really can sit down with people and and counsel them, that's not the qualification. The qualification is that you have Jesus Christ in your life and you're automatically, well, so to speak, the Holy Spirit is in you And he should be flowing out of you. And we should be, as we said last week, we should be little Christs going all over Tokyo and beyond. That is what we're called to. You thought it was to get your sins forgiven, which it is. Maybe you thought, well, I just wanted to be part of the Christian family, which it is. Well, you know, that doesn't even come close to what the Holy Spirit, His Word, and the Father has in mind for each one of us. Where He has put us, in our jobs, schools, neighborhood, in a store, on a train, walking down the street, we should be bumping into people constantly. Instead of saying, oh, sumimasen, we should say, Jesus lives! We need to be able to talk Christianese. We need to learn another language. Now, many of you are bilingual or trilingual. Many of us have studied languages, but we need to understand how to speak the words of Christ that are right on the mark for that occasion. And that occasion is your readiness, the readiness of the Holy Spirit, 
and the readiness of the word of God and the readiness of the heart of the person who will hear from you, Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. He is a savior. He is the one who died on the cross for all our sins. Simple truth in the Holy Spirit can bring that to their hearts. Our author, we don't know who he is in Hebrews, is giving final instructions. And he's saying, okay, class, this is going to be on the test. So you need to keep these things in mind because they're very important. Memorize this. Know it. Learn it. This is the final exam prep. Okay? These things are very, very important. Because these are the things that are practical for what we had talked about somewhat in a theoretical manner. But these are where the rubber meets the road. Practical. The gospel is practical. And it involves these items. And this is what the author of Hebrews is squished it down and said, this is important. It'll be on the final. So let's read. Continue in brotherly love. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were bound with them. And those who are mistreated as if you were suffering with them. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We're going to go down through this passage. Just three simple points. Point number one, brotherly love. Number two, honor of marriage. Number three, contentment. Those are the three that will define who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. Brotherly love in verses 1 to 3, continue in brotherly love, the author says. Brotherly love is one of about four to eight words that the Bible frequently uses for the word, the simple English word, love. Let's list them off. We've got one right here. Brotherly love. Filio. Agape. What is agape? Love, great, pure love. God's love. God's love. A high love, the highest level of love. What's another? Eros. 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 What is that? Is that bad love? Not necessarily. It depends on how you use it. Eros is romantic or sexual love. And uh, another one that stroge which is, it's uh, like 
I, re- I really like MCC. It's that kind of feeling, I think. But there is also one that talks about family love your offspring or whatever. Yeah. But anyway, in English you only have one. In Japanese we borrowed it from the Chinese. And the Chinese, where they got it, probably from the Jews. It's my theory. Hospitality comes out of this brotherly love. And so the author is saying, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For in so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. I don't know why the author of Hebrews put that in there, because I don't know what he's referring to. And I've looked in commentaries this past week or so, to find out what is he specifically talking about as far as entertaining angels. Can you think of any angels that were entertained? Abraham saw three guys and he was sitting in his tent and he looked out and saw these three guys and he ran to them to meet them. He didn't know who they were. And so they began to talk with him. When he said, wait a minute, you guys haven't eaten. Let me go make a meal for you. Now that's fast food. Because <laughs> these guys were traveling through. And they began to talk to Abraham over the meal. Abraham's wife was in the tent. And you know in tents, they're not soundproof. And so she heard Abraham talking to these guys and they to him and they said your wife in a year will conceive she was 90 years old but that was what these strangers said and Abraham said this is a prophecy of what is going to happen of the promise of God All the years, years, I have been waiting for this. And now it's to happen. So maybe that's what he's talking about here. If it was, we better be very hospitable to strangers. And that's why we are very religious about, in our service, of welcoming strangers to us. You might be an angel. And we don't want to diss you or or just ignore you. We want you to be part of us. Okay? So if you're an angel here this morning, don't raise your hand. <laughs> I don't know what that was about. <laughs> yep. Here's another interesting thing that I discovered this week. In uh, Matthew 25, Jesus told a parable about a king giving a reward. And he says, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? 
or thirsty and give you something to drink. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. You know that there are millions of Christians who are prisoners right as we're speaking. If you look at how many there are in North Korea, North Korea has been in the news these days, hasn't it? Since the Olympics and now the the negotiations that are going on. But there's a whole lot of our brothers and sisters who are in North Korea suffering in prison. And we need to pray for them. We need to have them on our heart. That could be us. And don't say, oh, it never happened. It may happen. Don't count on it not happening. And we'd want somebody to pray for us as well. In some of the countries in uh, the Arab world, there's many in prison because of their faith. Oh yeah, sometimes we hear about the famous ones who happen to be imprisoned and they get released by President Trump or President Obama. That's just a few of those who are in prisons right now. There are more people imprisoned for Christianity than any other offense. And we don't know that. This is a time, this is an age of persecution of Christians. And we think, well, we don't feel it. We don't understand that. Yeah, it's bad here in in Japan by the fact that we're kind of ignored as Christians. But there truly are brothers and sisters who are languishing right now in prisons because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We need to remember that. We need to perfect the gift of hospitality. Remembering people, prisoners, brothers and sisters in prison. But I was just going to mention also, if you want to go online, there's several Christian organizations that are reaching out to those oppressed Christians, either in making appeals to the government to have them released. It is a needed work to be petitioning and seeking to alleviate this problem in in the world. You can educate yourself by going online and just typing in persecuted Christians in the world. And there's several organizations that will be listed there. One of them that I would recognize is an organization that was started by Richard Wormbrand, who was a Romanian pastor who was imprisoned for a number of years. If you want to get hold of his book, it's called Tortured for Christ. An incredible story of what God did through this pastor. It's a classic. This happened many years ago, and uh, his organization is called Voice of the Martyrs. Can go online and see that. Second thing that we're going to talk about is honor. And that's in verse 4. And it's talking about the honor that is about marriage, that marriage is precious. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled. When we think of, of marriage, we don't usually 
think of the bed as being honored. We think of the bride and the groom, and we honor them. We come to a wedding ceremony to give them uh, gifts and congratulatory notes and, and that kind of thing. But what is marriage all about? What is in the whole concept of marriage? And by the way, who invented marriage? How did we get marriage? Where did it come from? And what is the model of marriage? Well, here's what I found. When God created man, he created woman from his side, from man's side. And he always intended that his plans for mankind should be for one man married to one woman. And mankind has failed to live out God's design. Yes, there are many of us who follow that. But you know what? If we look in our world today, nation after nation after nation after nation is accepting the idea that is wrong. One woman for one man. And they're saying, it doesn't matter. You can have as many as you want. Or it doesn't matter. A man to a man, a woman to a woman? No. You know who designed and who planned marriage? You know. We've talked about it here before. God created Adam out of the dust of the earth. And he formed this body of a man and then he breathed in his nostrils the breath of God and man became a living being. The breath of God. Like that. Here's what the Hebrew Bible says. Hebrew translation called it Tanakh. Malachi 2, 14-16. I might have read this to you before. The Lord God says, Because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have broken faith, though she is your partner and covenant spouse, did not the one God make all so that all remaining life breath is his? And what does that one God seek? But godly folk. So be careful of your life breath and let no one break faith with the wife of his youth. For I detest divorce, said the Lord, the God of Israel. Today, today's world, marriage should be undefiled. When God says he hates divorce, what does he mean? I hate divorce. He means that he had established that there be one man, one woman making a marriage. And for that to be wrenched apart, that is exactly what happens in a divorce. It tears at a person's heart, their spirit, and their being. And not only does it affect the man and the wife, but it also affects their children. How do I know? How do many of you know? Because you are the recipient of a divorced family. And it hurts. It hurts deeper than the outward appearance. And it takes years 
for that to be healed. That's why God hates divorce. He designed it. Why? To point to his son, Jesus Christ, who is the bridegroom. He's called the bridegroom. And who is his bride? Who is Christ's bride? We who believe in Jesus Christ. We are called the bride. That's why God says, I hate divorce. He doesn't want hurt children. He wants us to be whole. And to be brought into relationship with someone who would never leave us or forsake us. That's our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. The one who laid down his life for us. Marriage is to be undefiled. And today, in today's world, nation after nation is also changing the laws of what God has established with same-sex marriage. Established by God. And we're thinking, well, we're living in a modern age. No, we can't shrug that off, folks. We need to take our stand. And I don't mean that we go into the streets with signs, we're against LGBTQ. We stand on the Bible. We don't hate those people, but we hurt for them that they're destroying their lives and destroying families and destroying God's order. It's a slap in the face of Creator God. One more item that is not good news, and that is that God will judge offenders. If you type into your search engine, God's judgment on sin, probably in your list of uh, findings there, you'll find some sites that list the offenses of sin in the Bible. And you go down through the, the list, there's about eight or ten references that will come up, pop up on your screen. At least they do on mine. And it lists the sins that God hates. Out of about eight or ten of those references, eight of them list the number one offense that God will punish and says it very plainly. I will punish them who do this. It is sexual immorality. And not only that, I did a search on pornography. 38% of websites are dedicated to pornography. And they're increasing. And it's not just men, it's also women. 30-some percent of women are visiting pornographic sites. It's not just a man's disease. That's serious. We are polluting ourselves. The number one offense that God is judging is sexual immorality. And where does it start? Jesus said, it begins in your heart. Those kind of sins come out of your heart. And he wants us to be clean. He wants us to be free of this. 
That is his desire that we be clean. We need to be very, very careful what we look at. And I'm talking to all of us, but especially to my brothers. I've been involved with pastors' prayer summits for a number of years where pastors come together to pray, pray for one another. And usually about on the second day, we'll have several pastors who will say, would you pray for me? I've got a problem with pornography. In their studies, in their study room. So if it's hitting pastors, it is also hitting the rest of us here. And I know this is not a pleasant message for you to hear, but it is necessary for us to watch our eyes and ask the Holy Spirit to give us a sense of his holiness so that we can look without thoughts being aroused in us. And all of you have hit these sites, many of you accidentally, but they're up there just like that and you already see it. I know you have. There's none of us exempt. And that's what the world we're dealing with. God will judge offenders. But here's some encouraging words. Ephesians 5, 25 to 26. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And that's what God desires to do in our lives. And then finally, the characteristic here of those of us who are walking in the Lord is to be content. And in verses 5 and 6, we read, be free from the love of money. And the way to be free from the love of money is to be content with what you have. To be content with what you have. And that doesn't mean that you can't advance in your company and you can't be climbing the corporate ladder. No, God needs leaders in those places. But it's not there for the money. It's to bring glory and honor, praise to him. That should be our motivation. When we go to work, when we're getting a paycheck, we want to glorify God through our work. God made us to work. And he wants us to also be rewarded for that. But it doesn't mean that that's what we have to just, we're going after. We've got to have a bigger car. We've got to have a nicer home. No, that's not what life consists of. He wants us to be a contented people. And that means resting in him and what he gives you as gifts. Katie and I have lived, well, right now we're living in a little tiny one LDK, which, you know what, in Japan, that's a great, or particularly Tokyo, that's a great deal to have a one LDK. Some of you are in a, doesn't even have an L and a D. <laughs> we need to be contented. Katie and I have lived in a million-dollar home. Now, that might not sound like, you know, much these days. 
back in those days when we went on our first furlough from Japan, the church found a house that didn't sell. It was up on the hill overlooking Bellevue, Washington and the lake. And they said, well, we found this house and I think it was something like $800 a month for rent. And the church says, we'll take it. And they furnished it and we were living in a million dollar home in Bellevue. Be free from the love of money and then live life with confidence. So in our living, know that the God who loves you, the God who has made you, how you are, is showing his favor towards you. Receive that from him with a confidence that you are his loved child. Know that in your ordinary life, he knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly what he is planning for you. You don't need to be worried or concerned, but just walk in his favor and his love. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? How can he affect me? How can he put me down? How can he change my life? I will not be afraid. The Lord is my helper. That's where my trust is. And I know that some of you are in some very tight, hard places right now. But God is your helper. Don't be afraid. He knows where you are. As his child, he knows how to take care of you and provide for you. That doesn't mean that you're going to live in a million dollar home. It means that he cares for you abundantly. And he probably only allowed us to live in that house for one year. But we really didn't get a, a good taste of that because we didn't have a a Lincoln Continental to drive ourselves to church. (laughs) That wasn't our lifestyle. But it sure was nice to live there. And you know what? We had a missionary couple living with us for that year as well. They had the basement, but that was really good. God knows who his children are, and he knows how to take care of us. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the confidence that we have in you, not in ourselves, not in our own schemes, but in simple faith believing you. As your children, we want to walk in righteousness and purity. As your children, we want to bring credit and honor to you. Praise be to the Lamb. Praise be to the King who reigns forevermore. We thank you that we can place our lives without exception, without reservation, with true confidence, without fear. You are our God, and we will serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.